0: Hey creeps, I'm Taylor, and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello, and welcome to episode 17. I've got a half, mostly melted Starbucks in front of me. I've got my my thinking cap on ready to get started. Uh, okay, so I chose today's case because I was looking for a documentary on Magellan TV. Not sponsored, but should be. Anyway, I was looking for a documentary, and they didn't have it, but they did have one that was called Finding Lee, a Tangled Web. I had never heard of this case, which is crazy, because from what I understand, it's one of the most talked about cases in South Africa. And after watching the documentary, I was shocked, to say the least. There's twists, there's turns, there's all kinds of ridiculous stories and excuses. Lee's family is in the documentary quite a bit, and her parents seem like the sweetest, most incredible people. Also, the investigators who worked on this case did a phenomenal job, which we love to see. Let's get into it. Lee Matthews was born July 8, 1983, to her parents, Sharon and Rob Matthews. Lee had a sister named Karen, who was only 13 months older than her, so they were very, very close, and they were, like, best friends. She was a student at Bond University in Johannesburg, South Africa, where she was studying BCom Finance to become a chartered accountant. A.K.A. she was brilliant because even saying B.com Finance makes me have the I'm bad at math sweats. Um, Lee was described as soft-spoken and kind. She was very sensitive and didn't like to be in the limelight very much. She was an amazing rower and she was part of the rowing routine, rowing team, at Wits University. Even though she wasn't a full-time student there, she was so good that they were like, come be on our sports team even if you go to Bond University. From what little information I've read about Lee as a person, she was just described over and over as very kind and fun and very smart. She was a dedicated and hardworking student. On July 8th, 2004, Lee celebrated her 21st birthday. She got her hair done and got a manicure and then had dinner with her friends and family at a Chinese restaurant. Like I mentioned, Lee didn't like being the center of attention so much, so it's safe to assume that she probably quietly reprimanded her friends when they loudly and embarrassingly sang happy birthday to her for the whole restaurant to hear. Listen, can we stop doing that? <laughs> There's nothing more uncomfortable than sitting there listening to everyone sing that song off-key, not knowing where to look. I This is going to become an anti-birthday song podcast, okay, moving on. Um, Lee's parents gave her a beautiful tanzanite ring, similar to one that her mom Sharon always wore. This was something that was special to mark a special birthday for her. Also to celebrate her 21st, Lee was planning what sounds like the most fun party I've ever heard of. She decided to have a big Pirates of the Caribbean themed birthday party with a bunch of her friends this Saturday after her birthday. Lee and Sharon had plans to meet up Friday, July 9th after after Lee attended a lecture at the Bond University campus. However, when Sharon showed up to the campus, Lee was nowhere to be found. Sharon drove around for a while, looking for Lee's car. Um, The campus wasn't that big, so it shouldn't have been hard to find her, especially since they had plans to meet up. Sharon of course tried calling Lee multiple times, but her phone was turned off. Sharon tried to remain calm and not jump to conclusions, but she couldn't help being concerned because this was so unlike her daughter. Sharon eventually left the campus and went to meet up with her husband Rob, who also tried to help calm her down and not jump to the worst conclusion. Sharon called Lee's phone over and over again, and finally she got an answer. The voice on the phone was not Lee. It was a man saying that he had kidnapped Lee. At first, Sharon laughed with relief, thinking that Lee was just pulling some big fun prank to, like, kick off her Pirates of the Caribbean party, after all, this movie is literally about a girl being kidnapped by pirates. Very quickly, Sharon realized that this was not a joke. The man repeated himself and said that he was very serious, that he'd done this before and he wouldn't hesitate to kill Lee if they didn't listen to his demands. This man said that he wanted 300,000 rand, about 21,000 U.S. dollars, by that evening. He also told Rob and Sharon that if they involved the police, he would kill Lee. Then he said that he would call them later to arrange a money drop-off and hung up. Right from the start, the Matthews were stuck between a rock and a hard place and didn't know what to do. Should they call the cops? Should they try to figure this out on their own? The The Matthews were like financially stable, but they weren't super rich. They didn't have access to that kind of money. Um, they also couldn't figure out why Lee would have been targeted for a kidnap for ransom situation because this was very uncommon in Johannesburg. They decided that they were in way over their heads and decided to hire a private detector, detector, (laughs) private investigator. I don't know what that word detector, detective investigator. I think I just mixed those two words together. (laughs) Help me. Okay. I'm fine. Um, Anyways, they hired a private investigator who encouraged them to get the police involved. The police advised Rob to negotiate the amount with the kidnapper and also said that he needed to demand proof that Lee was alive and safe before arranging the money drop. A few hours went by and the kidnapper called again. Rob told them that they couldn't get the 300,000 Rand that quickly, but they could do 50,000 and the kidnapper immediately was on board and totally fine with that. That was the first red flag for the police that this person was not this experienced hard ass that he was claiming to be because he didn't try to negotiate that amount at all, he just took the lower amount and was like, that's what's up, deal. Rob also demanded to speak to his daughter and the kidnapper agreed and a terrified Lee told her dad that she was okay, but they needed to follow the kidnapper's request and not involve the police or he would shoot her. It just makes me sick thinking about how scared Lee must have been and how desperate her family had to have felt at this time. They had no idea what was going on I just, the man who did this is a piece of crap, more on that later. So they set up a meeting spot for 8pm that evening where Rob would do the money, the money drop, and the kidnapper said that after he got the money, he would arrange for Lee to be picked up somewhere nearby. At first the police decided to send an officer with Rob to do the drop, but on the way there he panicked and was so worried that something would happen to Lee if they um, saw that he brought an officer with him, he decided to drop the officer off at a gas station and continue to the meeting spot alone. Again, he was so freaked out and could barely think straight, he's trying to follow the directions to where the kidnapper told him to go when his phone rings. It's again the kidnapper who is now pissed because he can see Rob's car from where he is, and Rob missed the turn, so he's yelling at him. He's getting super frustrated, and so the kidnapper directs him back to the correct place and tells him to flash his lights three times and then wait. A man quietly walked up to the car and banged on the window. He told Rob to throw the money out onto the ground. The man picked it up and then walked away. After this, Rob waited for a while, and then he drove around for a bit waiting for a call from Lee or the kidnapper, telling him where he can pick her up. But the phone never rang, and when he tried calling Lee's phone, it was turned off. By the following day, which was Saturday, July 10th, a 10-man task force was formed by the South African Police Department. They didn't waste any time, and Lee's case was extremely important for them. Rob and Sharon tried all day to get in touch with the kidnappers, but nothing was working, so eventually they decided to do a press conference and beg for the kidnapper to bring Lee back. After Rob's heartbreaking plea, this case gained attention all over the world. Tips were being called in like crazy, and a website was set up for people to write in any information that could help them figure out where Lee was. So many people took notice of this case because it was so horrifyingly random. There was no rhyme or reason to why the Matthews family was targeted, and this made people all over the world feel empathy for them because they felt like it could have happened to just any random college student. Lee's sister Karen had to, hold, had to hold her parents together. They were in so much agony over what was happening, and she kind of had to, like, pull everyone off the ground and keep everyone moving forward. And remember, Karen was only 13 months younger than Lee. Like, this was her best friend, her big sister, and they couldn't figure out where she was. Um, and I'm sure that they were also grappling with this guilt of not knowing if they should have involved the police, if that was a good or a bad idea, but what else were they supposed to do? Like, they are not... How was anyone supposed to know how to deal with a criminal who has taken their child like it it pisses me off so something that was really awful was that in the media there were people that were being very judgmental against rob and sharon for calling the cops and basically blaming them for the kidnapper's lack of communication which makes me so mad so they said that or they did what he said and he didn't uphold his end they had no other option but to call the police and get them involved the idea that someone would turn around and so openly victim blame is just gross to me i hate when people do that in the media So police were able to piece together what happened the day that Lee was taken. She went to her lecture on campus as planned, and then she walked to her car like she always did. In the documentary I watched about this case, they said that there was a male student who was in one of her classes who usually walked to her car with her, but on this particular day, he had an appointment across campus, so he had to go to that. She walked to her car alone, and then she disappeared. He didn't have anything to do with this. It was just bad timing, horrible timing, and an awful coincidence that she ended up walking alone that day. Two witnesses said that they saw Lee talking to a man in the parking lot and then the next minute she was just gone. A week later, there is still no new information but there were helicopter and ground searches all around the campus and around the area where the money drop happened. They looked into any CCTV footage that they could find in the area including the CCTV from the toll booth nearby in case the kidnapper left the area but there was nothing there. 12 days after Lee was abducted, a municipal worker cutting grass in a field near Walkerville unfortunately found her body. She was found naked and had suffered four gunshot wounds. Something that was very odd was that she was laid carefully on her back with all of her hair brushed neatly to one side, very carefully and very like staged looking. In the search of the surrounding area, nothing was found, not one clue. Whoever put her here took her clothes, her phone, and the special ring her parents had given her for her birthday. Lee's car was found parked in the Bond University parking lot, but it was clear that someone else had driven it there because the seat had been moved back for someone much taller than her to be able to drive the car. As a few more weeks passed, the police were running out of leads, so they decided to bring in the Serious Crimes Unit. Group Commander Brigadier Pete Bailafelt, which Brigadier is the coolest name I've ever heard, especially for a detective. I love it. So he said that when things seem like a dead end, the best thing to do is go back to the scene of the crime. So they started by reviewing all the evidence at the places they knew the killer had been. When they looked more into the place where the money drop happened, they realized that this was not just some random location. Rob had been instructed to park his car basically under a bridge. Um, they call it a flyover in the articles I read, but a quick investigoogle to Google told me that's basically just a fancy word for overpass. So they believed that the killer had parked this car on the overpass above the road where Rob was told to stop. Then this way the killer could get the money, run back up the hill to his own car, and drive away without being followed because by the time police or Rob was able to get up to the top of that bridge, he would be long gone. They also re-interviewed the worker who found Lee's body, and he said that he'd been working in that same field the day before, so she absolutely was not there before the 10th. There were some clues, or lack of clues I guess, that led police to believe that Lee had not been killed in this field. For one thing, she had been shot four times, but there was barely any blood at the scene, and also two of the bullets had been found inside of her body, but the other bullets had passed through her and were not found anywhere nearby. Along with that, the bullet casings were in like a pile neatly near her feet as if they'd been placed there. Weirdest of all, Lee had signs of frostbite on her feet and the forensic pathologist determined that she'd been likely killed approximately 10 days before her body had been found and she had to have been kept somewhere cold because she didn't show signs of decomposition. Next, the detectives asked Rob for any other details that he could remember about the man he spoke to on the phone. Rob was so panicked and terrified during those first couple of days he didn't notice one weird detail at first, but as he thought back on it, he realized that the first time he talked to the kidnapper, this man told him that he was Libyan and that he was speaking in a different accent in the angry call that was made when Rob missed the money drop-off point. When he thought about it, it hit him that when he spoke to the man during that second phone call during the money drop, he had been yelling at him and his voice broke and he was speaking in an Indian accent. So finally, some kind of a clue was available. The police looked into the Bondi University. Um, student listings to see if there were any Indian students enrolled, and there was one Indian male enrolled in some of Lee's classes, but he had mysteriously dropped out a few weeks before Lee's abduction. At this point, they knew that Lee's phone had been used in Walkerville, an area with a large Indian population, so they started looking at the cell phones that had pinged in the same area around the same time that Lee's phone had been used. I hope that made sense. All of this is to say that there was a cell phone that pinged in the same area as Lee's that belonged to this male student they already had on their radar. Donovan Moodley was a 24-year-old student at Bond University. He was in the same program as Lee, so they may not have been friends, but their paths definitely crossed. Like I mentioned before, he dropped out of school a few weeks before he kidnapped Lee. Police looked into his cell phone records and they matched up with the locations of Lee's phone in the days that she was missing. They also pulled his bank statements and saw that he made a few deposits within the first few days of Lee's kidnapping that totaled 39,000 Rand. They also found out that he made a payment to the Ducati dealership nearby in Bryanston. Pause really quick because every time I read the word Ducati, I think of the part on Freaky Friday when the mom's boyfriend sees Jamie Lee Curtis driving around with Chad Michael Murray on the motorcycle and he's like, I saw you with some guy on the back of a Harley. And Jamie Lee Curtis is like, hello, it was a Ducati. It's literally the only reason I know what a Ducati even is. Okay, anyways, moving on you guys what a great movie okay sorry um when the police looked into this and interviewed the workers at the ducati dealership they said that donovan had brought his bike to the shop for some repairs they said that he paid thirteen thousand rands for this repair but he couldn't pay the full amount he owed because he said quote a deal went wrong and i did not make as money as much money as i expected because he's a jerk okay um, he also bought his girlfriend an engagement ring with this money because he's trash. And in the documentary, he also said that he they went on some big, stupid, bougie yacht party trip so that he could propose to his girlfriend. I'm glad that you're having such a fine time, you piece of crap. Okay, so they also found that he used his credit card at the Formula One Hotel in Bramley and stayed for a few days before kidnapping Lee and then checked out on July 10th. Donovan lived with his parents in Walkerville, so I'm assuming he got this hotel room so he could pull this off in private, which is gross. Uh, The hotel was also six kilometers from Bonn University, which is about 3.7 miles. They guessed that he stayed here and stalked Lee for a few days before kidnapping her. Police also found that he had a license for a nine millimeter handgun that matched the murder weapon, so they were like, slam dunk, let's get this creep. On October 4th, 2004, 87 days after Lee was kidnapped, Detective Bailafelt and another officer waited outside the Moodley's home. Around 9 a.m., Donovan left the house, and as he drove down the road, the police officers pulled him over. And when they approached the car and told him he was under arrest, this piece of human garbage had the balls to look at them and say, What took you so long? I've been expecting you. Pause for disgust. Um, okay. The officers said that he had this really stupid, cocky attitude at first. He was, like, smirking. But then very quickly he switched gears and was like okay i'll confess i'll tell you everything so donovan said that he had been desperate for money and decided that rather than going and getting a job like a normal person his only option was to kidnap someone for ransom the week of july 7th he told his parents that he was going on a motorcycle trip but he actually went and checked into that formula one hotel near the campus according to him he waited and watched the campus for a few days without having one, anyone specific in mind to take. He literally was just going to randomly choose someone who was alone and his motive was that he figured all of these kids had rich parents to go to this university, so whoever he chose would work out. As I mentioned before, Lee's family was not super wealthy like he'd been banking on, so that's awful. <laughs> um, it's awful either way. The idea that you're just going to like stalk these college kids and just pick one of them up and that's how you're going to get money. I just, I hate it. Okay. Lee was a very kind-hearted girl who was very cautious and probably wouldn't usually have given a stranger a ride, but again, Donovan was around her own age. She may have seen him around on campus and he told her that he needed a ride to just a couple of blocks away. When they got to the area that he said he needed to be, he pulled the gun on her and forced her into the back seat. Then he drove to an isolated parking lot, where he bound and gagged her and put her in her own trunk. Then Donovan drove her car back to the campus where his own car was parked, waited until no one was around, and transferred her to his own trunk. Uh, That was when he arranged the money drop. Lee was in the trunk of the car, alive when he picked up the money, as far as we know. It just makes my heart ache to think about her poor dad, just feet away from her, having no idea where she is and no idea that she's there. I just this person's a monster. I'm sorry. Um, after Donovan picked up the money, he drove around for a while trying to figure out what to do. According to him, he had planned to just drop her off somewhere and then drive away, but the longer he drove around, the more he thought about what would happen if she went back to her family. She had obviously seen his face. She knew who he was. She could identify him, and he knew that this would get him caught, so according to Donovan, he supposedly had no other choice but to murder her, which is one of the dumbest, most callous things I've ever heard. You had plenty of choices, you just chose to be a monster. Donovan said that he drove Lee to the field that she was found in, forced her to undress so that he could burn her clothes to destroy any evidence, and then shot her. Um, It's really upsetting and awful on its own that he did this to her and then had to take it another step further by violating her privacy in that way. Um, she was not sexually assaulted, but he did make her undress in front of him, and in an open letter that Rob later read in court, um, he said, quote, "...when it came to her body, Lee was a very private person and always covered herself. How ironic that she should be the subject of such a traumatic 12 hours before cruelly meeting her death, forced to strip naked in front of this man who terrorized and tormented her, her body then found lying naked in a field. I wonder how Mr. Moodley would have felt if this had happened to one of the ladies in his family," End quote. Donovan took the police to the place where he burned her clothes. Um, The charred remains of the clothes were still there, along with her car keys, and her special ring that she received for her birthday was not there. They ended up finding the ring later in Donovan's room, and it was clear that the ring had been burned, and they figured out that Donovan hadn't known about the ring when he burned the clothes, but after reading about it in the newspaper, he went back and got it to keep as a trophy. Because, again, he's a disgusting creep. On the search of Donovan's room, they found the ring his gun, which was tested and determined to for sure be the murder weapon, and letters that Donovan had written to his family basically confessing what he did and saying that he would be going to prison for a long time. Also, on the forensic testing of Lee and Rob's car, they both had fingerprints that matched Donovan. The day he was arrested, the police brought him back to his house to do this search, and his parents were there, and by all accounts, Donovan was raised in a normal family in a very loving home. His dad was a Baptist minister, and his family was very religious. Donovan didn't have any kind of police record or anything before this. Donovan allegedly dropped to his knees in front of his parents and said, I have committed a murder. I killed Lee Matthews. His poor mom was absolutely horrified and said, quote, I have prayed for the Matthews family every night. Why? To which he, of course, said nothing and just stared at the ground. Donovan said over and over that this was all him, that he worked alone, he had no accomplices, But the police were immediately suspicious and didn't believe that because, first of all, he lied about where the murder happened. It was very obvious that the body had been moved there. And then there were some other things that proved that his story wasn't lining up. So let's talk about some of the evidence that proves Lee's body was not in that field for 10 days, like Donovan insisted. First of all, like we talked about before, her body showed signs of frostbite. Not only that, but her body was barely decomposing at the time she was found, meaning she had to have been kept somewhere cold. She also didn't have any signs of post-mortem sunburn that would have been there if she were actually out in an open field in the sun for over a week. Also, there were no bugs found on her body. Um, In an experiment that was performed later by entomologists that proved there would have been flies and ants found on her body if she had been there that long. Uh, I think that entomology is a fascinating part of forensics, even though it freaks me out. I think it gives a lot of information and can give a lot of clues when there are things that are unanswered, like in this case specifically. They said in the documentary that the type of insects found at the crime scene can indicate how long a body has been there. In this case, there were open gunshot wounds, so that means that there would have been maggots there if the body had been there for more than a day, and there were not those signs and that type of forensic evidence. Along with that, ballistic experts said that the trajectory of the gunshot wounds didn't match up with his story. Plus, again, there were those two bullets that couldn't be accounted for. They searched with metal detectors and ground penetrating radar and found nothing. Where did they go? Magic disappearing bullets? I don't think so. They also were like, hi, there's also no way these bullet casings would just magically land in a pile near her body, but good try. When they did an autopsy on Lee, they found that the prescription medication she took daily was present in her kidneys and that also pointed to the fact that she was killed very very soon after he kidnapped her. If she had been alive for more than a couple of days, she wouldn't have had any of this medication left in her system. Also, it just keeps adding up. Also, if I understood correctly, there is a type of fungus that was found on Lee's body that is commonly found in freezers or cold storage at places like a morgue. So with all that outstanding evidence that Donovan Donovan so lamely attempted to place, they were like, that's also not true. So they looked into some mortuaries in the area. And well, wouldn't you know it? Donovan had connections. Uh, I think it was like a family friend or a friend that was referred to as owning a quote unregistered mortuary in their home which makes me uncomfortable (laughs) why is it not registered but either way it just happened to mysteriously close down right after donovan was arrested so there wasn't a ton of more detail on that it was mentioned very briefly but it was in there despite all this evidence donovan still would not answer any questions about the evidence and if there were more people involved in this how he did this He insisted again and again that he committed this murder in the field on his own, which we all know is a lie because there's an evidence list a mile long to prove otherwise. Donovan was officially arrested and charged with murder, kidnapping, and extortion. He immediately pled guilty and the trial lasted for three days. Donovan again insisted he acted alone and he would only answer yes or no to questions and not give any further detail. Lee's family obviously had a ton of support in the courtroom and they all wore white ribbons to show their support. In a clip of Sharon Matthews, who, again, is just incredibly strong and an outstanding human being, she was standing outside of the courthouse and she said, quote, I can never forgive Donovan Moodley. You're not talking about an accident or anything like that. You're talking about a cold-hearted killer. But his parents, I weep for them, end quote. Donovan had a pretty big support show up for him as well. Um, his dad said that they stood by him, but as a father, he felt responsible for his son's actions. And he said that their family was ashamed to be associated with him. He also said that he didn't think that Donovan even deserved forgiveness from the Matthews family, to which I say I agree. If I understand correctly, in the South African court, there is no jury, so it's just a judge that makes the decision on sentencing. Um, And South Africa doesn't have the death penalty as an option, and Lee's family said that they wanted the highest punishment possible. Donovan Moodley was sentenced to life imprisonment, which is minimum 25 years, uh, 10 years for extortion, and 10 years for kidnapping. The judge also said that he did not believe that Donovan had acted alone, but he wouldn't give any more information, so that's where they landed. Because Donovan pled guilty, he didn't have to do any kind of cross-examination or answer any questions further than he would by those yes or no statements and then just pleading guilty. The investigators in the case were so frustrated by this because they weren't able to present the evidence and question him regarding the fact that there were most likely other people involved. The fact that he pled guilty was most likely so that he could protect whoever was involved. Two weeks after his sentencing, Donovan filed for an appeal saying that he was coerced into confessing, to which I roll my eyes because you've given, you've been given every opportunity to say what else happened. They asked you over and over to tell the whole story and he kept insisting that it was just him, whatever, and now all of a sudden he wants to say he was coerced. I think that's crap. Um, Luckily, so did everyone else. Um, so So in this appeal, he said that the investigator was just asking him questions and he was forced to say yes to the things he was being accused of. And then he said he was forced into creating a story that only involved him and no one else. Allegedly, he was afraid for his own life and said that he couldn't say who else was involved because they were in the courtroom watching him, which I think is, again, stupid because if that were the case, wouldn't you just be like, Yes, there were other people involved. Hey, look, they're right over there. Arrest them now, so they can't hurt me? I don't get that. I think it's lame. Um, three months after filing his first appeal, he withdrew it because he said that he intended to ask for a retrial because, allegedly, he had new evidence that would prove that he could prove who the real killers were and that, actually, he'd been framed, even though all of the money was in his bank account, his fingerprints were found at multiple places involved in this crime, and his gun was definitely used to murder Lee. He still wanted to claim that he'd been framed and wanted a retrial. So they were like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Sounds great. You have 15 days to organize your crap and tell us why you deserve a retrial. Four years later, 15-day deadline, four years later, he's like, okay, I'm ready. In 2009, four years later, again, four years, okay? In 2009, Donovan claimed that the judge had, quote, committed a material misdirection in, po- in imposing the sentence that he did, and described his sentence as, quote, shockingly inappropriate. Really? Because I don't think so. Also, here's a quote that, in my opinion, shows a very egotistical, narcissistic side of Donovan Moodley. Um, when talking about why he deserves a retrial, he said, quote, For five years now, I've spent every breath of mine in a pursuit for freedom, Five years on, and I am still a media favorite. A country sickened by crime must choose an official face for crime and a mascot for evil. Is it me? It's just such a stupid thing to say. This is not a person who's saying he's sorry that he took part in this. He's not saying he feels terrible. He's doing this whole, like, poor me, my life is so unfair, everyone is so mean to me, and it pisses me off. Then he said, quote, I want to make this clear. I will stop at nothing. Leaving no legal means untried, it is my right to pursue justice, to which I say, no, sir. Luckily, the judge was like, get out of here with that weak-ass argument, especially when you're four years late on handing in your assignment. Okay, he didn't say that. He actually said, quote, I am of the view that the application is frivolous and granting it would be an abuse of the process of court and would lead to an appeal where there is no prospect of success. So basically the same thing I just said. Um, yes, King, his appeal was denied. But don't worry. <laughs> Donovan was back in 2012 with another news story. This time, Donovan asked for a retrial and decided to represent himself, because that always works out so well for these murderers. Donovan claims that back in 2004, when he was arrested, he was tortured by the officers. He said that he was arrested and handcuffed to a chair and forced to confess. He said that at the time, he told eight police officers that three Nigerian drug dealers named Frank, Ali, and Jemba forced him to do the kidnapping. And then he said that the police asked him where these three people were, and he couldn't say. And he said that the officers then stood behind the chair and lifted his arms up so the handcuffs would dig in and hurt him, and he said, quote, the pain was too much for me and I cried. Then, because he was crying, allegedly this officer said that he had to confess and say he did it alone. Then Donovan went on to say that this confession was false and should have been done in front of a magistrate, but allegedly the officers wouldn't let him confess to a magistrate. Because, quote, they knew I would tell the magistrate what happened, meaning he would tell the magistrate that he was being tortured by these police officers, which I don't think is true. First of all, the police and literally everyone involved in this case was like, it's so obvious that there are more people who helped you with this, so why would any of them have said he needed to confess to doing this alone? That makes no sense. Also, in this new supposed truth-telling from Donovan, he said that Rob Matthews lied about hearing his accent on the phone. According to Donovan, Rob Matthews changed his story and said that he heard an Indian accent after Donovan was named as a suspect, which is incorrect, because they didn't start looking into him as a suspect until after Rob remembered that detail. Here's my thing, which is it? You had absolutely nothing to do with it, or these and these drug dealers framed you, or you were forced to participate. Like, you can't do both. Another new quote-unquote truth from Donovan was that he had a totally reasonable explanation for how so much money ended up in his bank account exactly the same time as the ransom was paid. Basically, he tried to flip things around and be like, who would be dumb enough to do that? And then said that the money was his own money and he could prove it because, quote, I was a financial planner. I would not have made the mistake of depositing it into my account, end quote and then he said that it was money he made from selling his bmw and no one believed that at all basically donovan's biggest argument which (laughs) this is so stupid his biggest argument for why he was obviously innocent and coerced into saying these things was that he was just way too smart to commit a crime that was so stupid he literally stood in front of a courtroom and said over and over how the crime was committed in a way that was so quote haphazard and quite stupid and quote that's not like me oh look another case of smartest man in the world syndrome. Then he broke down the details of the kidnapping, extortion, murder, and disposal of the body and gave examples of how these things were dumb and how they could have been done more efficiently. I just can't imagine sitting in the courtroom listening to him trying to say he didn't have anything to do with it by explaining how he would have murdered someone better. I just, it's very weird to me. It's very O.J. Simpson, if I did it vibes. The prosecutor in this case Um, whose name is Zias Van Zyl, said that Donovan taking the stand to brag about how he was just too smart to commit a crime like this actually just further proved that he had such a deep familiarity with the crime that only the person who committed it would have had all of this information. While it's widely believed, still, and very probable, that he didn't commit this crime on his own, Van Zyl said it was unlikely that the existence of these three drug dealers was at all possible. He said, quote, There is no evidence that these three musketeers were anything but ghosts, which I love. That's like the perfect description. Van Zyl also said that Donovan went through three different attorneys before deciding to represent himself, probably because, quote, nobody was prepared to go ahead with this preposterous story, end quote. Of course, this appeal didn't leave it anywhere, and Donovan Moodley was sent back to finish out his sentence. Apparently, in 2015, uh, Donovan went back to court again to fight being transferred to a different prison. He didn't want to transfer because he was in the middle of studying to get his law degree. Yes, you heard me. And if he transferred prisons, he wouldn't have access to the law library. Here's my thing. And it's okay if we have differing opinions on this. I just, I have a hard time with this. I don't think it's fair for violent criminals and murderers to be like, cool, I'm just going to get a degree while I'm in prison, while other people who are much more deserving can't have access to schooling. I just, it really bothers me. I think that there are some prison programs set up to help people get their lives together and get back on a path for, like, being a good human, and that's great, but I'm talking about people who are in prison for, like, fraud and, like, drug charges or whatever, not people who murder people. I just don't think that these people should get to turn around and then go get a law degree. Okay. (laughs) I get really worked up about this, so I'm just gonna move on. Oh, also, one more thing. He didn't want to move prisons because he didn't know he would lose access to having his guitar at this new prison, which had brought him so much, quote, joy, comfort, and solace. Hi. You know what else brings those things? Not murdering people. Was that harsh? Probably. But I'm not here to coddle murderers who took away any joy, comfort, and solace from the family of a beautiful young girl who had nothing but potential to do great things. So I'm sorry. I don't feel bad for him. The loss of Lee destroyed people's lives, and I can't imagine the grief that her family must have felt going to these appeals and having to listen to this man talk over and over with no apologies and say that he's innocent and that he was framed and that there's all of these other people who are involved that he has no proof of i just think it's ridiculous okay end of rant you guys look i made it all the way to the end of the episode without doing a rant um lee matthews was a beautiful human being who was so important and wonderful to her sister to her mom to her dad to all of her friends And I think that the person who did this to her absolutely deserves to spend the rest of his life in prison. So that's just my opinion. Don't yell at me. I hope that you liked this episode. It was something a little different. Um, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things, and also tell your friend who is also a crime creep to listen to this podcast. Okay. Send me an email at tgicrimeday at gmail.com if you have case suggestions or a spooky story you want to share with me, and I will talk to you soon. Bye!